We've been in Romans uh, since January the 8th, I believe it was. And today we finish uh, chapter 8 is our plan. And got to tell you, these last, I'm going to read the last 12 verses of this chapter again. We've looked at these verses multiple times. Our text this morning is only the last five verses, but we're going to back up for the context sake and the introduction to get the last 12 verses. And I hope today, uh, so this will be the fifth message in this, these 12 verses. And so I hope if you've been here for each of those, I hope today of all the times you will see how they're all connected. If ever, ever a passage of scripture is connected, these 12 verses flow one to the other. We couldn't keep you here five hours, so we had to break them up. But now, just hopefully by the reading of it, you'll see how it all flows. And uh, we want the Lord to do that. I cannot do it, so we hope he's our teacher today. And you should be praying throughout that the Lord would lead you. He'd guide in your thoughts and make the text come alive. Romans 8, let's start in that bedrock of our faith. We love this verse. We anchor ourselves in it. Verse 28. God's word says, and we, well, I need to stop right there. So, Jeff, you're going to never finish at this rate. (laughs) I emphasized this last week when we talked about how Christians are eternally secure, what some people say. So you believe in that once saved, you're always saved. You believe in eternal security. I really emphasize again the word we and us when I'm using that. I'm talking about people who have been justified. I'm talking about people who have eternal life. I'm not talking about everybody. And again, no offense. It is highly unlikely that everyone in here right now has eternal life. It is highly unlikely that everyone in here that would raise their hand. If I ask you to, if you're a Christian, really is a Christian. It's highly unlikely. Some just would do that. Kind of draw off suspicion. I don't want any suspicion. I'll go along with it. Knowing you're not. Some, you think you're on your way to heaven, but you've added works to it. You've added works to God's grace, and thus you are not saved yet. I hope you would keep listening. But when we're talking about the we, Paul's going to put two qualifications on it. We are those who love God. Not everybody who says they love God loves God. And here's your hint. If you've rejected Jesus, you say, I've never really received Jesus as my Savior. I've never admitted my sins to Him. I've never received His promise and asked Him to save me from my sin. You don't love God. So that disqualifies you. And then the second qualification is there are those who are the called according to His purpose. And that purpose is going to be the main thing that really flows out of all this chapter. Everything is about this purpose of God. Now, I got that out of the way. Let's go, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God's Word says it. For those who are called according to His purpose. And as we've said before, this is not because we're good. Not because we're better, smarter. None of that. Holier? No, no, no. None of that. Why then is it all going to work out? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. It's about what God does. Those whom he foreknew. We talked about this. Those he foreloved. He foreordained. For those whom he foreknew. He also. And here's a powerful word. I think all the assurance we're going to see in verses 31 to 39. All flow from this idea. Those whom he foreknew. He, God, also predestined. Predestined. 
beforehand. Determine the destination. When God determines the destination, they will reach it. You say, what's the destination? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's part of the purpose of God. I would almost say that's the secondary part of the purpose of God. You say, what's the primary part of the purpose of God? The next phrase. We're conformed to the image of his son in order that he, here's the main thing, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's God's purpose. That's what's going to happen. So he foreknew. He predestined in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He declared them righteous. We said he calls us, literally it is a summoning. It's not physical, it's an inner. It's when God's spirit talks to your spirit. This happened when I was nine years old. I hope you've had a time in life when this has happened. God spoke to me and he summoned me and I went. It wasn't anything that I did. I was summoned and I went to him and he called. And those whom he called, the Bible says, he justified. Justify means he declared righteous. You say, don't we have to do something in there? Oh, yes, we must put our faith in Christ. We must do that. We do that when he calls us and then he justifies. This is God's perspective. That's why you don't even see our part in it. Paul has given us God's perspective of our life. And then Paul says, those whom he justified. When he declares a person righteous... You say, I I thought we didn't have any righteous. Right, but he gave us Christ's righteousness because Jesus paid for all our sins on the cross. When God declares us righteous, he justifies. And the Bible says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then last week's message is verse 31. We went to 34. And I told you there are five questions. You say there's seven, but really we can boil the seven questions down to five questions. And I'm going to propose to you again. This time as we read all the way through verse 35, you're going to see all five major questions in their basic form. And I'm going to propose to you again. The first one in verse 31 is the main question. And then questions 2, 3, 4, and 5 all answer question 1. Say, what's question 1? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? You just told us it's all going to work out for those who love God, who are called. It's all going to be to their good. It's a guarantee it's going to happen. Why? Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. They will be conformed to the image of Christ. And Christ will be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called them. And when he called them, they come and they get justified. And then they make it. They get glorified. So Paul concludes. He says, what should we say to these things? What's our conclusion? And here's his conclusion. Here's what it should be. It's as though Paul says, I just wrote that. And if I am understanding what God just had me write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit then ultimately, this is a conclusion. If God is for us, who can be against us? As I said it last week, I'll boil it down even more. If I'm part of the foreknown group, then everything flows from that. So if God's for us, who can be against us? Who can successfully oppose God's people? The answer is implied, no one. Verse 32, question number 3. Two, it says, if God's for us, who can be against us? That's an answer to the main thing. What's our conclusion? So here's the third question. He who did not spare his own son, he did not withhold him, he didn't protect him, he knew that he would have to give his son to pay for our sins. Otherwise, we would all go to hell. 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Here's the third question. And it answers the first one. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Will God really give us everything we need? Absolutely. How do we know? He already gave us a Savior. He gave us his Son when we were his enemies. Now that we're his children, will he not give us everything that we need to make it there? The answer is yes. Question number four. But hold on. We still sin, right? Yes, we do still sin. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. But verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Hey, there's evidence against us. Even at, Jeff, you got saved in 1979. How much sin have you committed since then? Too much. Way too much. But not too much for God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul's asking that question. He asks it the same way in verse 34. But, here, but first he says, it's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Who can successfully, if I could word it this way, who can successfully bring an accusation and a condemnation against one of God's children? The answer is the first two words of the next line. Christ Jesus, literally, he's the only one. But notice what it says about Christ. He's the one who died, implied for us. More than that, who was raised. What if something happens to God? What if a million years from now something happens to God and God dies and, and then we're not secure anymore? No, God's already overcome death. Nothing can happen to God. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, inter- who indeed is interceding for us. So can anyone bring a successful charge against God's true people? No. Now today, our fifth question, the fourth one in answer to, what's our conclusion? What do we say to these things? Question five starts in verse 35. It's asking two ways, and it flows down to verse 39 with its answer. Here it comes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the word who there literally can mean who or what. And he offers seven things. Shall tribulation? Surely tribulation, that means I'm separated from the love of Christ. Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Well, those things mean I'm separated from the love of Christ. Verse 36 often gets overlooked. I'm not going to let us overlook it today. We won't be labored, but we're going to, it'll be the second point. Paul answers that by saying, as it is written, out of the book of Psalms, basically attributed to people's approach to the Jews, the Hebrew people, God's special people throughout the millennia, what's been there, what's been the world's approach to them. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, the idea for God's sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So again, back to 35, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword separate us from the love of, of God? Love of Christ, as is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, this is some evidence that makes these questions in verse 35 relevant. These are real questions. And the answer comes in verse 37. No. In all these things, verse 35, in all those seven things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the idea of him who loved us, as we're talking about the love of Christ, the literal idea here is he's already proven it by dying on the cross. The one who died on the cross for us. I almost thought about going back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and just reading like a whole section of Scripture about what Christ did on the cross, but we're not doing that today. You need to do it in your mind. Verse 37, In all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then the great crescendo of it all, Paul hits us with ten things. 
I am sure he's inspired, the apostle of God. Here's the conclusion. If I'm reading this correctly, what then shall we say to these things? His conclusion, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He's like, you're going really big here, Paul. Yeah, I'm going bigger than you've ever thought of it. I'm covering it all is what he's saying. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, not everyone, us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what I want us to preach on today and to look at. Last couple of weeks we've looked at this idea. Last week we looked eternal security of the believer with this thought. Can anyone threaten your eternal security? If you really are saved, will you ever be unsaved because someone, what if some powerful being, they really learn all that I've done, can I lose it? The answer is no one can threaten your eternal security. And this morning, you know what we're going to learn? No thing can threaten our eternal security. You say, why is that so certain, Jeff? Here's why. If I could say it of me, this is not braggingly, this is factual. Here's why. Jesus loves me. That's why. You say, how do you know, Jeff, standing on that stage, what if if it's different than you think? How do you know you really won't go to hell? And by the way, if you're a Christian, you should take it as your perspective, your first person. I'm telling you, I will never taste hell. I will certainly go to heaven. Why? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. You say, Jeff, this is describing a very specific love toward a specific group of people. It lasts and lasts. It's never broken. How do you know the Bible's talking about you? How do you know Jesus loves you? How can you say the Bible says so? The Bible never says Jesus loves Jeff Bartlett. Yes, it does. Because he called, and I put my faith and trust in Christ. I, I fit in verses 28, 29, and 30. I'm in it. That's nothing on me. I just know I'm in it. Therefore, I do make it. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I'm not the only one in the room. You say, yeah, but you guys mess up a lot. I know. We little ones, to him, we belong. Yes, we're weak. You're right. We are weak. We blow it. But he is strong. It's not up to us. It's not up to us. I want you to write this down. You may not need it today. You may not need it for a year. Somebody here this morning needs this. As believers, this is important. As believers, our being loved, I'm talking about believers. As believers, our being loved by Christ is not dependent on our feeling loved. Talking about me. My being loved by Christ is not dependent on me feeling loved. And I like it when I feel loved by Christ. But him loving me is not dependent and writing, oh, I don't feel loved, so I guess he doesn't love me anymore. No, it doesn't matter. I'm loved whether I feel it or not. If you're a believer, if you can sit there this morning and say, I know for a fact I've put my faith. Not only I have, I am currently putting my faith and trust in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus as my Savior. Brother Jeff, that's the only thing I'm trusting. Then you say, but I don't feel, I just don't feel love. I'm at a low point this morning. 
Can I real quickly share with you? I'm going to change the tenses because for some reason as I typed it, I made them past tense looking forward to this morning. You say, what in the world are you talking about? First note I took on this message. Listen, here's what I typed. As I began to look at this passage at 921 Wednesday morning, I don't know what you were doing at 921 Wednesday morning, but that's when I started looking at Romans 8. First note I typed is this one. As I begin to look at this passage at 921 Wednesday morning, I feel extremely inadequate that I'm not doing and being all that's expected. Say, expected by who? I don't know. Me. Me. I mean, okay, this is going well, and that's going well, and that's going well, but I've got this over here, and he's done. And I'm just not meeting it there. I'm not getting it done there. And that's just not enough. And I'm telling you, man, I don't know what you were doing. And if you saw me Wednesday morning, you wouldn't have known it. I'm just telling you, you wouldn't have known it. I wasn't in a good place. I was convinced, man, I'm not doing and being. I feel that surely God is disappointed and displeased. I'm typing that. Get ready to study Romans 8. You're like, Jeff, come on, dude, you've been preaching us Romans 8. Surely you know. I'm just being real with you. Man, I was low. But I finished this last line, and I started looking at the text, and here's what I typed. I feel extremely inadequate, and I'm not doing and being all that's expected. I feel that surely God is disappointed and displeased. But I have learned that feelings lie to us, and they are not the main factors, and I will approach truth. Lord, you tell me the truth because Jeff lies to Jeff. And the enemy whispers lies to Jeff. And sometimes I'm like, you're right. I am not measuring up. I'm the biggest failure. And I'm glad y'all never have to go through that. But boy, it wasn't, it wasn't any good. And it took about 20 minutes to get out of that. If you ever find yourself there one of these years, maybe you need to go to Romans 8 and read the facts. Three things I want us to look at this morning. Number one. We could have called it another question, but I want us to see a question to consider. It's really another. It's the fifth question. Paul asks it this way. What, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives us this list of seven things. Seven is almost like this complete number. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And as I got to thinking about that, it's almost it like, Jeff, this question Paul is asking almost like stirs up two other questions. We could ask it two other ways. Watch this, even if you want to write it down. Here's one. Though God will never fail us, is there a chance that these seven things come into my life and they cause me to fail God? Jeff, what if one of these things, these tribulations and distress and these things come into your life and I don't respond properly, I end up falling into sin and and I fall into really bad sin. Can my sin cause me to lose my eternal life? Not on his end, but on my end. I, I know he's faithful, but I'm not. What if these things come? Can I lose it? And here's the second question. Maybe even bigger. If and when, not if, but when these seven things come into our lives, does it mean God doesn't love me anymore? Does it mean God loves me less? Here's the reason I'm including that. I hope no one in here is in this category, but I'm going to share it. There's, there's a lot of people, by the way, a lot of people fit this category. They have a literal, actual, philosophical, theological stance that when bad things happen to them, they immediately think, God is punishing me because of something I've done. God's punishing me because of something I'm not doing. You ever met anybody like that? That's Job's friends. What have you done? You've really made God mad for all those things to happen. 
There, I don't even remember her name. I went to a tiny little Christian school, and I was in the upper grades. And I remember this lady that worked with like our K4s, K5s. I forget her name, but she had a different kind of background. She was a church background, very different than what, than what I've been in all my life. And I remember her saying, like, if anyone said something about sickness or death, she literally would say, don't even say that. Don't, don't say that. Like, you don't, you don't even say death or died or someone who's sick. Like, don't talk about that. Why? Because she had a stance. That's God punishing people. And if you're like that, man, I feel sorry for you. If you think every difficult thing that comes in your life is God automatically, what did I do? Here's your, here's your hint, okay? Say, Jeff, don't you think God does things sometimes? Absolutely. Catch carefully. God does discipline his children to pull them away from sin and to draw them to himself. He does do that. And so if something's in your life and you're thinking, I wonder, is this God doing it because of some sin? Here's my question. Can you name the sin? Get before God and say, Lord, is this happening because there's something you're trying to tell me? And if you keep drawing a blank, that's not this list. That is not this list. If you know what God's saying. Now, if, you, if, if, if something happens in your life and the Lord, the Holy Spirit saying, that, I'm not pleased with that. And then it gets a little tighter and a little hotter. And like, hey, Lord's not pleased with that. But you refuse to deal with it. Guess what? He's, he's disciplining his children. But if you're like, I have no idea. Lord, what's, and you're like Job. That's not this list. Now, here's our problem. My theology is not that theology. But practically speaking, I can find myself... Especially if tribulations and distress comes wave after wave after wave and it extends for long periods of time. I can find even myself, though theologically I know better, practically I can find myself basically ending up where they end up. God, why are you doing this? Lord, don't you love me anymore? Do you hate me? You must not love me anymore. We tend to go there. And so in verse 35 he gives us seven things. I almost thought about preaching on these seven things, but we'd never get out of chapter 8, so here's what I'm going to do. Okay? We're going to just describe, give a definition of the seven things. We're not going to tear them apart in all the various ways that they could show up in our life. Here's the list. Tribulation. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit apply this to your own life. The first two, I may give slight little examples, but basically the definition, what is tribulation? Can it separate us from the love of Christ? It's trouble. Here's what it means. Pressure. You ever felt just, just got pressure? Just like lots of pressure. You're being squeezed. It's the common adversity we all have. Tribulation. The next one is distress. It, it's, it's this, I, think, I think distress is even just a notch heavier, more difficult even than tribulation. So you have tribulation, we're all going through that. Distress, we all eventually go through this as well. It's hardship, narrowness. Like I was already feeling squeezed, but now I'm in a super tight place. In fact, the word means being hemmed in. I may be wrong on this, but I'm going to try to throw out a few things to put in categories. Tribulation, what could that be? Financial pressures. Some of you are like, we just live there. I spend my whole life. It just, I would just love to get out of that. Financial pressures. Difficulty with tri- children. Mistreatment. Mistreatment in the family. Mistreatment at work. Mistreatment at school. I mean, just kind of like, why are they doing that? What's wrong? Just mistreatment. I wish they would treat me better. Death of loved ones. Could be pain. 
Distress, though, as I said, is even more than that. Possibly there would be these ideas. Disease, chronic pain. Like you just go on and on living with them. Death of very close loved ones. I mean those that mean the most of you. Tragedies, catastrophes. Tribulations and distress, again, trouble, pressure, being squeezed, hardship, narrowness, hemmed in. Those two, I think, kind of go together, and the other five are kind of in their own category. Persecution, what's that? It's affliction, specifically due to our faith. Uh, Catch that. Affliction due to our faith, and I believe the next four things flow from persecution. It's like because of your faith, you're being persecuted, and here's the fallout from that. And really, almost, if you look at the list, each one intensifies in degree. Look at that list. Famine. You say, that's the worst of all. Really? Hang on. Famine. Nakedness. Danger. Sword. So persecution can lead to what? Lack of adequate food. Lack of adequate clothing, meaning being exposed, unprotected. Literally, it could be the house. House is gone. Clothing's gone. I'm just out in the cold or out in the heat, and I don't have food. I don't have water. I'm experiencing famine or nakedness. Danger. What is this? The threat, not only of harm, the threat of severe harm, I might even die in this. When's the last time you were experiencing danger to that degree? So, Jeff, I don't know that I've ever been there my whole life. Talk about that in a moment. And the sword represents literally the end of persecution at its greatest extent to the point of death. You die for your faith. You say, I don't know one person personally, that has died for their faith. I can name some names in a book uh, written, written hundreds of years ago, but I don't know anyone personally that has died for their faith. Me neither. And that leads to the second point. I believe there's a qualifying context to this. So his question is that we need to consider, can anything separate us from the love of, of, love of Christ? If these seven things start coming in my life, does that mean that God doesn't love me anymore? And here's a qualifying context. Verse thirty. Six, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Literally, that was the approach the world has had for millennia toward the Jews. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul takes that out of Psalm that's attributed to the Jewish nation, and now he's applying it to God's people, Christians, the bride of Christ. I want to propose to you that Paul, literally, as he's looking at this list of seven things, I think he puts the first two in a category. Everybody's going to go through those things. Does that mean God doesn't love me anymore? No, doesn't mean that. But then there's these last five things. They're almost in their own category because Paul is seeing a context of persecution. He anticipates a context of persecution. Can we have 1 Corinthians? Uh, yes, look at this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 13. When we're talking about tribulation and distress, I'm going to propose to you that all of us go through that. Paul tells the Corinthian church, no temptation has overtaken you. Hey, listen. Grace, you listen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So ask yourself, the things that I'm struggling with that are the biggest things in my life, that if they keep coming at the rate they're coming or length of time, I even question myself, find myself questioning, God, do you really love me? Why are you allowing this? Ask yourself this. Do I know anyone else who's going through similar things? Well, I lost this person or I lost that. I don't have enough of that. What we may find is no temptations overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I believe, again, all of us are going to experience tribulation and distress. But Paul is not writing about theory in verse 35. If these come into my life, does that mean we're separated from the love of Christ? It's not theory 
This is literally a context of persecution Paul is looking at. If you've got your Bible, and it'll be on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, look over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to tell you, I want to show you why this is not just theory with the Apostle Paul. It's not theory. It's reality. Literally, he experienced all of the things that he just listed. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul started the Corinthian church, and years and years later, he's gone starting other churches and ministering to other places on more missionary journeys. And some false teachers are coming behind Paul, undermining them, and he's going to defend himself, though you're going to see multiple times he hates to do this because he's going to get in a little bit of a a contest. Because these Corinthians are confused, like, hey, they say you're not the real apostle, and they're doing all these things, and we don't know if we need to believe you anymore or these guys. Watch verse 18. Again, embarrassed to do it, Paul writes. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. I can't believe you guys are making me do this. I'm going to defend myself in writing. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself. Do you sense the sarcasm dripping here? You guys put up with those fools because you're so smart. Drip, drip. For you bear it if someone makes, you, makes slaves of you. Or devours you. Or takes advantage of you. Or puts on airs. You eat it up. You eat it up. They come in and demand this, that, and the other. And they just have airs about them. And they tell you all the wonderful things about it. And you're just thinking, well, I guess Paul, Paul wasn't that way. He came to us as kind of a weak person with this mighty message. These guys come in with mighty people and a weak message. And maybe they're right. And Paul's having to defend himself. Again, verse 20. You bear it if someone makes slaves of you, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, strikes you in the face. You put up with that. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Sarcasm. Yeah, I didn't do that to you. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. And you can hear the Corinthians. Yeah, but they say they're Hebrews, Israelites. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Yes, Paul, they tell us they're the servants of Christ. Here it comes. It's the most embarrassing moment for Paul to have to write this. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Just tell you straight up, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. For with, for, with far greater labors, they say they're servants, I labor way more than they do. Far more imprisonments with countless beatings, too many to count, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That means the Gentiles. Literally, three times with rods. Not telling us how many times they hit him. We know the Jews hit him 39 times with the whip. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Remember, that's one of his words over in Romans. Danger from Gentiles. I mean, like to the point of death even. Almost at death. Any moment he could die. That's how he's living. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure of me 
on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Did you just see the list he just put? Paul is not talking about in Romans 8. Theoretically, let's say you experience persecution and famine and nakedness and there's danger and it even comes to the sword. And if you read that, you say, hold on, Jeff. He didn't have the sword. You said Paul experienced all of this. Raise your hand if you know how Paul died. Anybody know how Paul died? Tradition tells us his head was cut off with a sword. Would you go back to Romans as you do? Romans 8. The last book, we'll not turn there, but the last book Paul writes in the New Testament is the book of 2 Timothy. He's in prison. He's asking Timothy to come. Timothy, I believe, was Paul's favorite and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse number 12. Paul says, indeed, Timothy. Watch this, Americans. Grace view, look at this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Paul says, Timothy, you followed my teaching. You followed my preaching. You've been with me. You were there when I got stoned. You were there when I was persecuted in this place, in Antioch, and Lystra. That was, that was Timothy's region of Asia Minor. That's where Timothy was a young man. He went with Paul. He's, Paul is telling him, hey, Timothy, you've seen it all. Don't you be discouraged because I'm in prison now. And I'm going to go and tell you. He tells him later on, I'm not getting out this time. I will die this time. They're going to get me. But you keep on because I'm telling you all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You say, Jeff, how does that affect us? We're not suffering persecution. Quick note. Biblically speaking, persecution in some form is certain for all who live godly in Christ Jesus. That's a fact. If I've preached here for 15 months and literally every person who's ever sat here or ever listened to this online, they always agree, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that guy says, then I'm probably not preaching the Bible. My goal is not to make people upset, but if I never make anyone upset, that means everyone who listens to me preaches a Christian. Because unbelievers and the enemy are not going to like some of the things that I say and some of the things that we do. Before we hit our third point, I want, I'm begging you to get this point. Look at verse 36 again. For your sake, here's the attitude, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do y'all know that, that for 2,000 years that has been mankind's attitude toward God's people? So Jeff, that's not the attitude here in the United States. Christianity's kind of, guys, I believe when it's all said and done, we're going to look back and we are living in an anomaly. And by the way, the times are changing right now. I'm telling you the times are changing in the last five years. For most of U.S. history, what do we... Uh, Officially, 236 years. For most of that time, we can't... This is just theory to us. Persecution, famine, nakedness. There's this group of people, I guess, that think that God's people, the Jews, are just like animals basically to be slaughtered. But that's, that's, that's not real. That's not literal. I'm telling you, the time is coming. You can almost picture it now of people in our day having this attitude. All of them are good for nothing but to be killed and have their head cut off with a sword. It's coming. It's not just other places of the world. This is real. I'm going to tell you, if you'd study it out, Paul's original audience, they would not have had a book like this. This would have been a scroll. Probably would have been read all at one time. I'm telling you, and it would have been different house churches. Probably none of them this big. Maybe some of them this big. I'm here to tell you that Paul's original audience, when he wrote this in AD 56, let this sink in. Some of them died at the hands of animals just a few years later. You say, animals, what happened? Bad hunting trip? No. Literally in the amphitheater, 
perhaps tied, or here, here's your little weapon, and they turn animals loose that are ready to devour. Lions and tigers and lepers and whatever would entertain the masses. Turn the Christians out. Turn the animals loose. They're good for nothing. They're just like sheep to be slaughtered. This is going to be fun. Okay, bring out more Christians. We need more entertainment. Okay, put the animals up. Bring the gladiators out. Picture that. Just like congregations, just like this. Paul stands and tells people, you want to know the context? The context is not just difficulties in life. The context is your life for Christ brings on persecution and it leads to this and this and this. Ultimately, famine, nakedness, danger, even the sword. Some of these original readers within years, literally, they wouldn't know it while they're reading it. They ended up being wrapped in pitch and became Nero's human torches to light his gardens. The guy was so deranged. People sitting just like you are this morning here in these truths. And I get it. It's 2017 United States. It's like, that's never going to happen to us. I'm going through a hard time here and I've got a difficulty at work and I've got a pain there and I've got some financial and I get it. Those are on the list, but these last five, this is next level. That's the context. When our faith causes the enemy to take note and I will destroy you. Third thought this morning. Verse 37 to 39 is a confident conclusion. Here's Paul's conclusion to the whole thing. Last week's message centered on how believers in Christ, and I I stand by this, can never lose their eternal salvation. So, Jeff, why do you believe that? I can't re-preach that message. That message was much more to the point. Do we have eternal life or not? This one is, is more of this type of lesson. I want to put back up one, two verses that are in one text. Can we have the John? Look at this again. You say, Jeff, why do you believe that Christians can never lose their eternal life? One is because of Romans 8, 28 through 39. If that's the only passage I had, great. Here's a little sample from last week. Watch this. Jesus says, the reason you don't believe me is you're not of my sheep. He says, my sheep know me. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And now verse 28, I give them eternal life. Anybody here? Raise your hand. You don't have to say it out loud. Does anybody remember what I said eternal, the word eternal there means? It means life of the, raise your hand if you remember that from last week. About six or seven. Is it not coming back? Eternal life. What's that word eternal? It means life of the ages to come. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will, I've never had anyone explain that word, never perish. We are secure. We cannot lose it. Why? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one ever loses their salvation. If someone goes to hell, it's because they never had salvation. Jesus never took it back. This passage has all of those thoughts and more. Let me say it again. This passage that we're looking at today in Romans 8 has all of those thoughts that we're secure, we can never lose our eternal life. It has all of that and more. You say, what can be more than that? If you want to write it down, not only can we as Christians not lose our eternal life, I'm going to go further and say Christians, a Christian simply cannot lose. 
You say, right, we can't lose our eternal life. Right, we can't lose your eternal life because if you're a Christian, by the way, you should internalize this. Is this true? He just made a pretty bold statement. We cannot lose. You say, Jeff, that's not true. I know of some Christians and they are losing and they have lost. Hang on, I would tell you, at times it may look like on the scoreboard, look, we're losing. See, Jeff, you're wrong. I would say, no, the time is still on the clock. When the clock runs all the way down to zero, and I don't mean just at the end of my life or your life. I mean when time finishes and it's down to zero, none of us lose because Christians cannot lose. We cannot lose our eternal life and we cannot lose, period. Halverson writes the following, quote. Talking about verse 37. He says, this is the realism of the Christian faith. Does this sound familiar? He says, you see, God does not spare the Christian trouble. He does not insulate him against tragedy and difficulty. But he is with him in it and brings him through it and out of it more than a conqueror. Look at verse 37. It's a key to the whole text. Paul says, shall these things separate us from love of Christ? No. In all these things, in all these seven things, we are more than conquerors Through him who loved us. Notice what I'm about to say. All this is through him. It's not us. It's through him who loved us. Here's Paul's conclusion. All the attempts at opposition against God's people. All the attempts at condemnation and accusation. And God, you can't let them go to heaven. They've done that and that since they've been saved. All the attempts of persecution. What Paul's conclusion is, all they do is serve for our eternal spiritual good. By the way, Jeff Bartlett forgets this sometimes. You're a preacher, I'm sorry. I get in distress and tribulation, and maybe somebody's not treating me the way I think they should, and I'm trying to help. I'm trying to tell them the truth, and they get mad at me, and I'm like, hey, but the Bible says, and they get mad at me, and I can forget. This isn't for my good. God says, this is for your eternal good. It's for your spiritual good. If I could say it away, it was in one of our songs today. This is not only saying these things, these seven things in our life. It's not saying they're not bad. It's saying they are good. And we don't think that way. Verse 37 again. It's so key. No. No, they don't separate us. Why? In all these things, not just after all these things. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That word more changes everything. I'm going to spend just a moment on it. You ready? You need to internalize this. To be conquerors. By the way, that's not what it says. But if the verse says, you're conquerors. They think they're conquering you, but you're conquerors. They don't win. If that's all it said, that would mean none of these seven hardships in verse 35 defeat us. That would mean that somehow, some way, we keep on enduring. We make it. If the verse said we were conquerors, we're somehow enabled to endure and persevere and be faithful. That'd be great. Because I find that severity in life robs a lot of people of their joy and it beats them down and it makes them stop. And they lose their spirit of life altogether. But that's not what this verse says. In fact, I don't have anyone in mind. If I thought about it more, I'm sure I could come up with, listen... We know unsaved people. We know non-believers. I mean people who don't have eternal life. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. We know some of them, though, they just have a toughness. You ever met somebody like that? 
unsaved, old Mr. So-and-so, and out there he is on his farm, and he's doing his plowing, and he's got that and that, and the whole crop gets wiped out, but the guy just keeps going, and he lost that, and he lost that, and well, they threatened to take away the farm, and he got another loan, and then uh, one of his children died, and again, just rough time, and then this happens to him, and he lost that, and the, and the old guy, he just keeps going, why? Because he's kind of tough, and we admire him, because he's kind of like the Stoics, he just keeps going. No matter what. You say, Jeff, is that what God's telling us that we as Christians have? Nope, that's not it. Paul says more than conquerors. More than conquerors means more than we, we as Christians press ahead. We keep a smile, even a pasted one, amid great pain and loss and opposition and persecution. That is not what it means. You say, Jeff, I don't understand. What's the big deal about the word more? Here it comes. Simple. To be more than conquerors means that when these seven things, verse 35, comes into our life, here's simple, not only do they not defeat us and rob us of our joy, literally what happens is they actually drive us closer to Christ for provision, closer to Christ for protection. Literally, these are good things in our life because here's what happens with Jeff sometimes. Life's going good. Got a little thing over here and over here, but basically everything's going good. Jeff on his own can tend to kind of go his own way and every now and then, Lord, thank you for that. And if you don't mind, give me that. But pretty well, I've got it all under control. But one of these seven things or several of these seven things starts coming into my life. Inevitably, here's what happens. I start running to Christ. I need your provision. I need your protection. God, please. Do you see what just happened? The thing that the enemy thinks is going to destroy me, all it's doing is driving me to Christ. I'm going to make a big statement. I believe anything that drives us to Christ is a good thing. Anything. You say, but what if I had something happen in my life? Well, I'm in some real big trouble over here. Did it drive you to Christ? Then in a strange way, it's a good thing. The word actually means we are hyper conquerors. We're more than conquerors, hyper-conquerors. You say, what does that mean? It means we have victory to spare. We don't have victory, we have victory to spare. Got extra victory. And sometimes it takes many years to see it, but literally we come out on the other side stronger, more like Christ, more dependent on Christ. I hate to use the analogy I'm about to use, but I think it gets the point across. If I could say it this way. Do you all know how in our country our protectors, be it our local Protectors, police force, our national protectors. Do you know how they're finding it basically impossible to 100% stop terrorists who are willing to die? You understand that, right? Like, well, we can kind of limit it once they do, right? You can limit it, but you can't stop it. Wow, these, these nuts are willing to die. All we can do is kind of respond, be ready as best we can. I'm going to propose to you in the same way it is impossible to defeat any Christian whose suffering only turns them to Christ and who defines death as ultimate victory. How do you beat that person? Oh yeah, throw that at them. Well, that boss, that didn't work. They just turned to Christ more. They were starting to get comfortable. Now they're back in the prayer closet fervently. Well, then kill them. Well, you know what happens when we kill them. They're really going to know Christ loves them. Paul gives us 10 things. This list in verse 38 and 39, I believe, is an exhaustive list. This list includes time, space, spiritual, physical. It includes actual, hypothetical. I'm going to read it again. 
It includes the effects of time. In this list, you'll see the past, the present, and the future. It includes space. What's implied is things terrestrial, earthbound. It includes celestial. It includes spiritual and physical. Spiritual good forces, spiritual evil forces, and it even includes actual and hypothetical. Verse number 38. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life... Y'all have heard it said. What's the death rate right now currently? What's, uh, it's uh, it's, it's uh, November of 2017, and as of now, the death rate is 100%. We all die. 100%. Oh, no. This thing is coming to my life. Boy, I sure hope that when Jeff Bartlett gets ready to die, he remembers this truth. Getting ready to die. Yeah? Far from separating me from the love of Christ. Do you realize what's getting ready to happen? I'm getting ready to be rushed into the presence of Jesus Christ. And more than I ever knew it on earth, I will then be assured and most aware Jesus really does love me. Do you know where I'm going to be a fraction of a second after you do this to me? We're going to kill you. Uh, Fine. Uh, I hope some of them are a little sad. I ain't sad. I know where I'm going the moment after. You're not separating me from the love of Christ. You're rushing me to the love of Christ, undoubtedly. He mentions neither death nor life nor angels. Angels are far holier than we are. Angels are far more powerful than we are. No angel will ever tell God, Father, listen, you can't let them in. They've sinned. Uh, I know about that. Yeah, but I mean, since they've gotten saved, you can't, no angel will ever... The angels, I believe, know who the children are and they will never challenge God in that way. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers. Now kind of skip the next couple. He says, nor things present nor things to come. And he says, neither rulers nor powers. And I don't know the difference between those two, but apparently that's in the spiritual world. These are very powerful beings and apparently they're of the fallen spiritual world variety because the angels are listed first. No good angel's going to cost us our eternal salvation, our our eternal security, and no other fallen angels, be them rulers or powers. I don't know which one outranks the other. Hey guys, I don't know if we're talking about spirit beings that have wings as big as grace for you. You're like, I've never thought of, do you seriously think? Guys, they're, these, they're, these beings may be so large, they have wings as big as skyscrapers. I don't know. They may all, they, 10 may fit in this one room. I have no idea, but they are real. I'm trying to tell you, they are real. We don't know how large they are. I'm sure some of them are, are ferocious looking as a result of the fall. And some are beautiful looking. But Paul's point is they would love to harm God and hurt God by destroying us, but they know they cannot deal with verses 31 to 34. They can never overcome the declaration of justified that God has put on his people. No chance. Now look at verse 38 again. I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present. This is important. Work with me here. I'm going to go from your left to right. Things present. Here's the start of creation I'm going to throw a number out. I have no idea, but maybe a good conservative number. 10,000 years, this is things present. This is what we call the history of the world. And I know some people don't tell you billions and millions of years, but biblically we're talking about creation here. And let's say we're up here at 7, 8, 9, 10,000 years. That's things present. In that category is all of your past sin, all of your current sin. All of that is in that category. And Paul is saying nothing in this will ever separate us from the love of God. No powerful forces, be them good angels, be them fallen angels, none of them. When you die, you're not 
separated. Whether you live, you're not separated. Again, no sin in any amount in this life will separate you from the love of Christ. And that's a small term. You say, no, Jeff, that's a big term. No, that's about 10,000 years so far. But then he says, nor things to come. Let's go back. Watch this. Creation. Let's go forward 10,000 years. Nothing in there is going to separate you from the love of Christ. Now let's go. Let's say the Lord comes back here and things to come goes from here and just keeps going and going and going. Do you all know what all is in that category? Do you know the potential of that statement? Nor anything to come. What is possible? This one is way longer. All I want to ask you there is, do you believe the Bible? You say, yes, I believe the Bible. Then believe this. You say, I'm kind of doubting my eternal security. I'm trusted Christ. I trusted him at one point in life, and I'm continuing to trust him. But what if I, no, no, rest, nothing can ever take it from you. It's permanent, nothing to come. And then he has these terms, verse 39, nor height, nor depth. We have a better idea, but we have no idea how large the universe is. This is over. The, whole, the Holy Spirit says, Paul, they're going to know more than you know now. And they've got some nice pictures, and it shows God's glory of how large the universe is. Bottom line, you look up, and really it's not even up because there is no up or down in, this, in the universe. You say, well, there's left and there's right, right. You say, there's left in the universe, and there's the right, right. Turn, okay, okay. Well, now there's the right, and there's the, There's no up, down, sideways. It doesn't matter. But Paul's point is... God gave me this idea that I look everything upward and I look everything downward through the entire universe. Can anything, anyone, take these people's eternal life from them? And his solution is no, nothing. And in case that wasn't enough, he finishes with the big phrase. Along with things to come, the other big one is anything else in all creation. In your mind, real quick, do this. Let's make two categories. Over here is everything that is not created. Here's a line. Over here is everything that's created. What's in this category? Again, everything that is not created, we're going to put in this category. And here's a line. And over here is everything that is created. What is in that category? And only God, right? So his conclusion here is everything else, be it now. By the way, I have a hunch. I've shared it with you. I believe this. I can't definitively say it. I have a hunch. This is the first creation. It's the first creation. I don't know. In fact, I think, I doubt this is the last one. Nothing in the Bible says God can't do this again and again and again. And that's why if you're a child of God, you're on the ground floor of something way bigger than you and I or understand. Way bigger. You are in the children group if you become a Christian. You're in the children group. And I believe there will be more and more. And Paul allows for that. I don't know that's going to happen. Paul allows for that and says, it doesn't matter anything in all creation, which means everything except God. So only God could take our salvation. And he's already proven he loves us enough to die for us. That will never happen. And this will never happen. So I've come to a conclusion. I make it. John R.W. Stott writes the following. He says, our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, boy, he knows me, and faltering. Our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail and fickle and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. And then he writes this note, the last one in your handout. Stott says, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints needs to be renamed. 
And some of you are like, what is that doctrine? Others of you may say, hey, Jeff, do you believe in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? I know we never become perfect in this life, but I believe we are put on a path of sanctification, on a path of holiness. Ultimately, we reach glorification. Everybody. Now, here's what I've, my understanding of Scripture. A Christian can stray away from the Lord. A Christian can fall into sin, and the Lord will discipline them and bring them back to himself. And if they don't respond, he'll up a little bit more to bring them back to himself. This is the best life. Get away from that sin. Hate your sin. Be killing your sin. Come to me. But he never takes their salvation. So, Jeff, do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? I believe that that process will happen over and over, and they are going to be put on a path becoming more and more like Christ. If they don't, and a true Christian continues to try to wallow in sin, I believe God will take them out of this world. I believe God will kill them. And that would be a sign of, well, I guess they really were saved. God would not let them continue to live that way. And there are passages of Scripture to defend that, Corinthians and I believe 1 John. So, Jeff, do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? Yes, true Christians never fall away from the Lord. They never fall down and don't get up. They never stop. They continue. They don't quit on God. True Christians do not. But Stott, I like what he says. He says, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. In other words, we keep going, right? It needs to be renamed to this. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of God with the saints. Why do we not quit? Because God is with us. He keeps us persevering. He Perseveres with us. So what's our conclusion this morning? Three thoughts, and I'm done. Number one, I'm just going to throw it out. If I were you this morning, and I'm not a Christian, you're here, okay? Listen. You say, I'm not yet a Christian. Here's one more reason to become one. So what's those reasons? Number one reason you should become a Christian is because Jesus died on a cross and God will get glory and everyone will know how great his grace is because he allows even sinners like us to go to heaven. That's how powerful Christ's death on the cross was. That's the number one reason you should become a Christian so that God will get glory from your life as making you a trophy of grace. Number one reason. Number two reason you get to go to heaven. Really good. You get to go to heaven and experience the glory of God. Number three reason, I would rank this number three, you don't go to hell, you cannot go to hell. Number four reason in this life, I'm telling you, life's going to smack you in the face, it's coming. It's going to hit you. And on your own, you're going to have a tough go. But when you do life with your maker, he has the shoulders for it because you don't. That's a great reason to become a Christian. Second thought is this. If you're a Christian and you're struggling, don't quit. Don't quit. You may be hurting, but you make it. You make it. I'm going to ask you, and I'm talking to me as well, by faith, embrace the tribulation, embrace the distress, embrace the persecution, embrace the difficult things, knowing that these verses are true. God is actually making me stronger through this, and God is going to use this to get glory to himself. I make it. I will not quit because God will never quit on me. Stay the course. You are actually a super conqueror. You not only endure, it's driving you to Christ, and let it drive you to Christ. I'm going to read. I'm going to go fast. Martin Luther wrote a song. Perhaps you've heard it. It's be back in the 1500s. You got to get it. I'll close after this. 
Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man, capital M. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth. His name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Verse 3. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. F-E-L-L. One word will fail him. Last word, last verse. Let's add the tune. One word shall fail him. One little word. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours, through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. That's the message. You can't lose. He's powerful. We have an enemy. But we have a mighty, mighty God. Would you bow your heads? We're just going to go right into a song. One verse. Christian, here's the third and last thought. There were seven things in the message Two in one category, five in the other. And I'm going to be honest with you. We definitely deal with the first two. Not nearly as much the last five yet. Christian, here's my thought. This is for you. Use, in light of this message, use your current status of spiritual and material blessings as an American Christian who by God's grace is not currently experiencing life-threatening persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Use that 
while we have it as a platform for global outreach to make converts and disciples of Christ, to Christ, from those who have yet to hear of His inseparable love for them, also because God will save. I'm here to tell you, God will save. We're coming up on Lottie Moon, Christmas offering. You say, Jeff, is that even important? Guys, we're, we're it. We're in a time of blessing. You say, I don't have a lot. I'm going to beg you, pray and ask God, Lord, right now, I'm not going through that. Lord, this morning, I'm thinking of my brothers and sisters. Listen, hundreds, I hope I'm not right. I dare say I am. Hundreds of our brothers and sisters in the one body. We are one body. And yes, as one body, we are being slaughtered all the day long. Hundreds will die for our faith this week. And God's got some more of his kids out there they've never heard. They're going to hear. You know why? God's going to move in your heart and my heart. We're going to give and we're going to pray. And we may even go. Because they're out there and God's going to save them. Lord, thank you that we win. Lord, I'm glad I get to rest in that. Lord, thank you that our feelings are not always true. And when they lie, we have a copy of the Bible to look at. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that keeps pounding it into us. Thank you for the truth of Romans 8 that you determined it in eternity past. God, will you give us a burden for the lost? Lord, I pray for my brother. I don't know his name. He's going to face death today. Strengthen him, God. Strengthen his family. They're going to lose a dad today. Lord, I don't understand it. You're going to let his head be cut off today. Lord, my brothers and sisters right now are in prison with not enough food, not enough clothing, and the winter's coming. Let us lift them up in prayer. Or for some reason, you've protected us. We're in a little bubble here. Lord, I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Since it's all for our good, let us have the wisdom to invite your best. We want your best in light of eternity. And I trust you, Lord, because you do love me. You've already proved it on the cross. So whatever you got for me this week, that's okay. Further your kingdom through Jeff Bartlett. Through Grace View. Would you stand?